Welcome to the Professional Drinkers podcast, brought to you by choosesunrise.co.uk. I'm Janet Hadley, and this is for you if you're an HR professional, a business owner, or a leader who'd like to explore the drinking culture in your workplace. I'll bring you lived experience stories, expert views, and tips for creating a drink-safe workspace without killing the buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Professional Drinkers podcast. It's a, a, a rainy day here in Leeds today, which matches, I'm afraid to say, my mood a little bit, which is very unlike me. Um, I'm sure anyone who knows me well knows that I'm a, a generally a cheerful soul. Um, but I've had a, a really tough week this week. I'm having a really tough week um, and I can't share the details about why, because it would reveal really deeply personal information about somebody else but um suffice to say it really has been a very very difficult week for me um and one thing that I do keep coming back to as I um try and look after myself and my own mental health as I work through something of a crisis this week is thank goodness I'm not drinking you know this really would all be made a lot more difficult with alcohol and I'm so grateful this week for my sobriety ah, and that I've been able to hold on to that and to uh, to face what the world is throwing at me. So um, I don't, I'm not going to talk for ages today. Um, I, for once, don't actually have all that much to say, but I do have one exciting piece of news for you. Um, so we are uh, at Choose Sunrise, we're entering into a really exciting collaboration um, with the Alcohol Free Drinks Company, which is run by Andy Mee, and with the Sober Butterflies, which is run by Hannah Taylor. And together, we are going to be bringing a unique offering to the workplace um, where we will be able to bring you um, an alcohol free teetotal tasting event in the workplace, coupled with Lift Experience speakers. Uh, which is really the perfect way to introduce what can be a, quite a difficult and taboo topic onto the workplace wellbeing agenda. And what a great way, way to launch further services into your business that support you to become that alcohol safe workplace, as we say, without killing the buzz. Um, so I'm really excited to be announcing this collaboration and we are setting ourselves off with a brilliant launch party which we are doing um on the 3rd of may so it's a wednesday evening straight after work if anyone can make it it's in leeds city center um and we are being hosted um very kindly um by an organization that is run by one of the sober butterflies so um if you don't know what the sober butterflies are I am getting Hannah on as a guest soon, um, so you'll know a lot more about it once you've heard from Hannah. But it is a wonderful organisation um, that Hannah's created. Um, it's completely free of charge, so anybody can join. And it's really all about socialising and forming connections and friendships with sober people. Um, so the whole ethos is that um, friendship is free. And what Hannah has really successfully done is set up what she calls flutters up and down the country where um, there are so sober social groups who meet on a, I think it's a Saturday morning, could be a Sunday morning, not sure, sorry. Um, and they have a sober, obviously, cup of tea, coffee together. Um, 
and meet with like-minded people. And it sounds so simple, but actually that is such a huge part of recovery for so many people and such a relief for so many people to find that their sobriety is normalised and they can meet other people who've walked in these shoes and who've run into some kind of difficulty with alcohol and come out of the other side happier, healthier and and, and sober. Um, and I really want to support Hannah with this work and we're going to be looking at um, finding ways to help fund the sober butterflies through some of the corporate packages that we're putting together. So it's a really exciting collaboration. Um, I've gone slightly off piece there, haven't I? I was about to tell you <laughs> about where it's being hosted. Um, so we are going to be in Leeds City Centre. Um, I'm just looking for the address now. Bear with me one second. Uh, really should have had this in front of me. Um, and it's at Transition Partners, which is at Bond Court in Leeds City Centre. So it's really near to the train station. Um, arrival between sort of 5 and 5.30 on Wednesday, the 3rd of May. Um, and you'll be out of there by 7. And when you leave, you will, I guarantee you, that you will have a new favourite alcohol-free drinks and you will also be equipped with some really simple tips that you can put in place really quickly to support your workplace to become more progressive, more sober inclusive and more alcohol safe. Um, So yeah, we're really grateful to Transition Partners uh, for allowing us to host this event on their premises um, and to help us get this collaboration off to a really great start. So if you know any HR professionals, any business leaders um, who might be interested in this, or you're just a bit curious yourself, you can register for the event. Um, just drop me a note at hello at choosesunrise.co.uk um, and I can send you all the details. And look out for us on social media advertising this event as well. Um so my guest this week um, is another wonderful sober hero, actually. So it's um, many of you may already know Michael. So Michael Sargood, he's quite a name in the sober world. Uh, <laughs> um, I think he um, is the only guest who's ever been on Jamie Lee Grace's podcast three times, which is quite impressive, maybe because he's such an eloquent and interesting person. Uh, to listen to. Um, so I know that you're going to enjoy this interview with Michael. Um, he is very open and very honest about his own journey. And we have a really good chat about how his um, alcohol use was hidden in the workplace. Um, and really some of the things that we do here at Choose Sunrisers, particularly now with this new collaboration, that could have been put in place that might have just helped him to catch sight of the fact that he could recover, to catch sight of the fact that there's a whole world of sober people out there ready to welcome him with open arms. Um, and who knows, he may have got onto that recovery journey a lot sooner um, if he'd had some of this workplace wellbeing provision in his um, career, which he certainly did not. So um, I'll leave Michael um, to do the talking. And at the end, I'll wrap up and let you know a bit more about the work that Michael does now. So my guest this week is Michael Sargood. Um, thanks for joining me, Michael. Thank you. You're very for welcome. Me. So Michael is a communications expert and he's also the founder of Sober Socials, uh, which is, well, let's let Michael tell us a little bit about that actually. Do you want to tell us what Sober Socials is? Yes, Sober Socials um is a, a hobby that sort of got out of control. <laughs> it's a website. Um 
which helps people find sober events and meetups near them, as well as providing news from the sober sphere. Um, and I also have a few online events myself. Um, so I was just doing it in my free time. Um, I've built up a sort of small subscribership now, and I am working on um, marketing and PR for companies working in the rehabilitation and um, alcohol-free sectors, which is a very new venture. But yes, what started off as a little hobby is now sort of turning into my job, which feels oh. like I'm not working because I enjoy it. It's wonderful, isn't it? If you can be paid for something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. So, yeah, that's fantastic. And I'm really glad that's worked out for you because I know how much work you put into Sober Socials. And, you know, you didn't do it for money. You did it for love, um, which is and I'm really happy that you've found a way to make, you know, to start to make a living out of it. I know, like you say, it's quite a new venture. So. Michael, I am going to take you right back, if that's okay. And I, w I want to ask you about your early drinking experiences and what your relationship with alcohol has been like as you were sort of growing up. Because I want to hear a little bit more about that kind of background before we start to talk about um, the workplace and some of the experiences that you've had there in relation to alcohol, if that's okay. So, yes, so I suppose. Your, yeah, go on. What's your earliest memories of drinking? I didn't. I was, I was quite late um, into drinking for I think a British person because I think my first drink was when I was seventeen. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I grew up in a household where that didn't really drink much. My dad might have like a champagne at a wedding, mm, and that's yeah. about it. He just doesn't drink. He doesn't enjoy drinking. Um, and so when I was growing up, I hadn't really been surrounded by drink. My stepmom would like some wine every now and then, but I'd never really seen her get outrageously drunk or anything. And I've yeah. never seen my dad drunk in his life. Um, and I, I, I spoke to him recently about it. I say recently, it's a couple of years back now. And he said he doesn't like that sense of not being in control which is right. exactly the thing I loved about alcohol. But so I, <laughs> yeah. I, I loved alcohol, um, sort of growing up, and I'd always thought, well, that's disgusting. Um, and so it wasn't until 17 where there's a real sort of, you know, you're, you're coming up to that age where you can legally drink and your friends are going out that I started, you know, trying to force a bit back because that's yes. what's expected of us. And I wanted to know what it was like to, to feel drunk. Um, mm. So that was my background, although when I grew up, although there wasn't really much alcohol in the household, we never went to the pub or anything, um, I was always very aware that um, my whole my mum's side of the family, she's from a long line of alcoholics. Um, I know that word might not resonate with people, so, but there was a lot of drinking problems in her family and um, both of her parents um, were addicted to alcohol my granddad um died before i was born from alcohol related illnesses and i'd seen my um nan die in hospital um and her last words were asking for whiskey in the hospital bed wow. and yeah going back and helping to clear up her flat and finding all the hidden bottles about the place and i was also aware of the impact that had had on my mum um, because mm, her parents were yeah. always um, 
um, fighting. I think there was domestic violence. She just wanted her priority when she was younger was to move out. Um, right. And yeah. as soon as she was able to, she managed to get a place at university. Um, but with the grant system there, you, would, you, you could stay elsewhere and they'd pay for your accommodation if you were doing a course that wasn't available locally. So she deliberately right. chose a course that wasn't available locally and got some accommodation. Um, I think it was wow. within a convent. It was run by nuns. And she she chose the course not because she was passionate about the subject, but it was because it was a, a ticket out of there um, for her. Wow. So I'd grown up acutely aware of the damage that alcohol can have on families. It's something that always affected my mum. She suffered a lot with depression and I... I I think a lot of that's down to some of the trauma that she had dealt with when she was younger. And then she had postnatal depression when I was born and she, she sadly took her life when I was eight. Um, so oh, Michael, I'm I, so sorry to hear I, that. Was, um, but it was just, it meant that I was aware of all the damage it could do. I wasn't yeah. exposed to really any of it growing up because I grew up with my dad and even before my mum had died, she'd been ill for a while. So my dad had had custody. My parents had separated. Um, yeah. And that's still a major trauma though. Yeah. Still decided at 17 uh, that I was going to have a drink though, because that's what you do. And then when I was 18, I started working in a pub. Um, yes. Initially, actually it was when I was 17 again, except I was working uh, in the kitchens when I was 17. And then as soon as I was 18, I remember relishing that opportunity to be able to legally pull a pint and start serving drinks. <laughs> and yeah, that would yeah. result in people would buy you a drink, you'd get tips. And then at the end of yes. every shift, and I was working several days a week. I was working 60 hours a week when I was 18 because I had two yeah. jobs. I was working as a teaching assistant, strangely, um, during the day and then working in the pub in the evenings. And then... The reward for the long day would be to spend the tips you'd got, and there's normally be about <clears throat> three pints. And yes. um, on the evenings <laughs> I wasn't working, I would still go down to the local pub because I lived in a village. There wasn't much else. There's um, so I would be at the pub when I wasn't working there, and I, I very distinctly remember a day when I wasn't working, and my parents were in watching the television, and I was I'd, I hadn't got any money. I'd already spent it, and. I was I just felt like this itching sensation that I needed to have a drink and I needed to go out and it was really really like desperate. My parents had um they were in another room. I was pulling off cushions from like settees and moving I was trying to find enough coins so that I could go to the pub and buy a pint and then I'd almost got enough and then I started walking up and down the street and looking around the local village shop to see if anybody had bought change. That's how desperate it was. It's because I just needed enough to have a pint. And as I even remember I was eighteen then and I remember thinking, This this isn't normal. <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> I shouldn't be doing this. Why am I so desperate that I need that pint and the that the idea of just staying in and reading a book or something is so abhorrent to me. And I don't think my relationship with alcohol ever really changed from then, other than my tolerance built up a huge yes. amount. Um, yeah. So whereas when I was 18, I'd, I'd have too many drinks, I'd throw up, that would be the end of the night for me, I'd go to bed. Yeah. Sometimes memory was a bit patchy. Well, fast forward 10 years to when I was 28, that was the last time I was ever sick from alcohol and also the first time I went to an AA meeting. Um, because since since 28, 
I've, I've just, it doesn't make me sick anymore. And that's when my, yeah. at 28, I lost my best friend. And that's when my behavior with drink started um, really deteriorating. I'd, I was in a, a very unhappy relationship that I wanted to get out of, that I felt trapped in. Um, I'd yeah. made plans to leave my partner of eight years at that point. Um and move in with my best friend, and then the next week, suddenly and unexpectedly, she died. So I'd lost my best friend, my confidant, and my way out of this relationship. And I just thought, "Wow, sod it!" And I started buying yeah. um, alcohol on the way back from work most days, and then drinking it secretly. And Intra- yeah, then my tolerance built up, and I drank for another ten years, um, to yeah. the point where I was fairly regularly going ending up in the psychiatric ward because um, my depression had spiraled out of control um, yeah. I was having lots of injuries as well um, I didn't break any bones or have any major injuries until the age of um, 32 and then between 32 and 38 uh, when I stopped drinking 38 um, I managed to break five bones and I don't remember breaking any of them Wow. I remember, <laughs> yeah. I remember the pain sort of <laughs> yeah. but I mean my leg I'd broken so badly that I'm I was um in a wheelchair and on crutches for four months. I've got metal plates. Um yeah. it took me eighteen yeah. months yeah. to learn to walk properly again. Um and I still walk with And a bit still of a leaf, we drink. I don't remember <laughs> Yeah. Yep. And I drank for another. Yeah. So I, that happened when I was thirty-two, and I drank for another six years. I even went. I was stayed inside for a week after I got back home because I, I broke it in Italy. And um, yeah. after a week, I was so bored, not knowing what to do with myself, that I went out on crutches and got absolutely plastered on crutches. And my ability to walk drunk without mm. crutches is bad enough, let alone with a leg in plaster that you're not allowed yeah. to put on the floor. Yes, um, but that's I laughed it off. Not good. Yeah, off. yeah. And so did my yeah. colleagues. <laughs> yes, which is interesting, yeah. isn't it? It's probably just seen as a good drinking story. A lot of that, to be honest. Um, yeah, I've got loads of good drinking stories that I used to laugh about privately. Sorry, um, laugh about publicly, and then publicly, absolutely yeah. despair about. Privately. Yeah, that's interesting. I can relate to that. 100% I really can relate to that so there's a lot going on there um, and I just wanted to pause and just say um, thank you for being so open and so honest and for sharing so much with us um, you know you've clearly had a lot of loss in your life to deal with and I think you know there's there's a real correlation isn't there between um, traumatic events and addiction of any kind um, and I'm not going to try and psychoanalyze you don't worry but <laughs> you know there's we all have losses in our lives we all have traumas either big t traumas or little t traumas and with this undercurrent of alcohol in the background being readily available and marketed to you, it really is very easy for anybody to get stuck in this trap of of drinking to forget. And I think that's something that I'd really like to get across to people who are listening to this podcast, because there is a real stigma around people who become addicted to alcohol, that it's their fault. And actually, I'd just invite you to have a slightly different view and to think about being in a position where you have where you're suffering you have suffered loss you have suffered bereavement you have grieving um or trauma of some kind 
and you are surrounded by alcohol at work, people are buying you drinks, you know, how much is that individual responsible for the fact that they became addicted to an addictive substance versus how much is society responsible for allowing those circumstances to develop around someone who's vulnerable? Don't know. What's kind of, how do you feel about that, Michael? Um, I, I think there, there has got to be an element of personal responsibility. Although nobody chooses to become addicted, um, I do believe that every time I had a drink, or every time I had a first drink at least, that was a choice. Yeah. I know that yeah. some people take a different view to that, maybe particularly people who subscribe to like a 12 steps um, sort of ideology where you're power, powerless over alcohol and you submit. I believe that every time you pick up that first drink, unless someone's actually pinned you down and is pouring it down your neck, you are making that um, conscious decision. Um, and that was actually something I found empowering when I accepted, look, if I can control to drink, um, if I can make the choice to drink, I can make the choice to not drink. It might be very difficult, but I can always choose not to have at least that first drink. I, once I'd had a first drink, that was it. I mean, there was going to be a second drink. The element of choice oh, yeah. disappears because your brain, your, your brain is already awkward and you're acting upon compulsion. But no one yeah. ever instructed me to walk to the shop and buy a drink. So I understand. There is yeah, a lot I, of pressure I, to drink, and yeah. often Go when on. people drink to excess, um, it's it's seen as amusing rather than as alarming, um, and that's the way I liked it to be seen because it enabled me to carry on yeah. with my um, dangerous drinking. Yeah. Yeah, so just to pick up on the point you made there, it is a choice. I agree with you on that. That's why my business is called Choose Sunrise, and I find it empowering as well. Um, I think that the the I don't think it's realistic to expect people to maintain long term sobriety if they're just using willpower or constantly trying not to do something. You have to get into the mindset that it is a choice. It always is a choice. You can choose to drink, and you can choose not to drink, and we choose not to drink in my groups so i totally i totally agree with you on that i think um there's more that we as a society can do to support and create an environment where it's easier to make that choice um and that's really what i'm trying to get across and one of the things that i think can really help with that is to try and just remove some of this stigma about um becoming addicted to alcohol because it's I guess what I'm saying is it's quite easy to happen. Like it, it, it happens. Nobody, nobody tries to get addicted to alcohol. It's just something that happens to you um, as a consequence of your circumstances is, is what I would argue. I don't, yeah. Mm, don't know I, what you I think. About entirely. That. I, I, actually, I did a post on LinkedIn the other day about um, employers and um, alcohol and that got a lot of, good feedback and I was expressing that we employers these days are much more open to talking about, openly about mental health mm -hmm. and to supporting employees um, who suffer from mental health uh, conditions but there tends to be silence on alcohol so mental health is considered to be um, a medical issue with medical solutions which is what addiction is but it still is. Too often in the law and in HR policies, um, addiction is considered 
a moral failure. Uh, sorry, a moral failure um, that that deserves scorn rather than the compassionate conversations you might have over mental health. And so often the two are linked, and there is a yeah. gaping chasm that exists yeah. between how em- employers deal with um, mental health and how they deal with addiction. And there's also a gaping chasm between how they like to support mental health, but uh, how they actually very often, maybe without realising it, are promoting a dangerous and addictive, albeit legal drug to employers. They're creating a culture that um, even if it doesn't actively promote alcohol consumption, and sometimes it does, it um, allows a permissive environment a, a permissive culture to exist where it's, it's accepted and has to be accepted yeah and in a way that yeah. it wouldn't with with um with even cigarettes um Correct. can you imagine if you I, i've worked in organizations where you have 4 p.m um somebody would be sent to the shop with some cash and they would buy a load of alcohol and for the last hour and a half of your day on friday you'd be drinking at your desk working and can you imagine if instead of alcohol, they'd sent them down to buy a load of cigarettes and then um, invited everyone and maybe applied a bit of pressure for everyone to smoke at their desk for the last hour and a half? You, it would be absolutely <laughs> Just, ludicrous. And it's, exactly, it is. it's exactly yeah. the same thing. I totally agree. I totally agree with you. And I think that this happens all the time in workplaces up and down the country, that there is this culture of four o'clock, four o'clock drinks on a Friday. Um Personally, I think that in 50 years' time, we'll look back at that and think, how on earth did employers get away with it? In the same way that people used to be able to smoke at their desks and they can't anymore. Um, I really do think that that yes. will change. Um, and, and, and in your experience then, in the places that you've worked, what's what has it been like as a drinker? Um, so have you got any stories you can tell us about things that have either helped you or have hindered you in recovering? Um, from your addiction yes yeah, so um, drinking the workplace for a lot of my earlier jobs it just wasn't really an issue because I used to commute a fair way and that was by yeah. car so if there were drinks after work I wasn't drinking because I needed to drive home um, yeah. it's when I sort of lived more locally to jobs where I was able to partake in some of those activities yeah. that um, it sort of became a problem and I used to get really excited, but also dread any work function in in almost equal measure. I'd be excited because it meant I got to drink, and that's what I really yeah. wanted to do um, with some people, depending on where the which job it was, with people that I liked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, but then I would also have the sense of dread because I knew that after I'd started, I probably wouldn't be able to stop. And there's a real risk of me making an utter idiot of myself and maybe not having a, a job the next day. So I used to mm, really yeah. dread those occasions as much as I looked forward to them. And I used to sometimes engage in a bit of self-sabotage. So like, I remember a couple of work do Christmas do's. I was so sort of stressed about how I, I might behave because my first work Christmas do at this particular organisation I had made such an idiot of myself I'd insulted my boss I started throwing coins at her head for some reason and challenging mm. everyone to an arm wrestle, dislocated my hip on the um, dance floor and then had to be carried home because the taxi refused to take me um, Yeah. so after happens that, to like, the best okay, of us Michael, really it does 
So I'd, I'd sabotage myself by offering to be the nominated driver. And that way you're sort of lauded as some sort of hero because <laughs> nobody has to get cabs Um But really I was doing it so that I wouldn't be able to drink. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. And is there anything um, that you think your employers could have done differently to support you better? I think uh, it's, it's it's been very different experiences. Like I, when I've worked at a small, uh, when I've worked at small PR agencies in the private yeah. sector, I mean that had a that their drinking was much more acceptable, and that's when wine came into the office, wine and beer and there would be more yeah. sort of social activities that they would fund, like away days. Um, yeah. And that sort of size organisation as well, you're not going to have the, there's no big HR function. HR yeah. was a woman who also did accounts and payroll. Uh, it was one yeah. person. Uh, so the level of support they're able to offer is was very limited. And yes. also it's down to the, the people who own the company. And, they're not it's not really on their radars like if you can't control your alcohol then that's your problem it's really down to you and to a certain extent there's only so much employers can do to support i mean they're not health providers healthcare providers so <laughs> i get that you yeah. have to take your lead from the healthcare experts and then when i've worked in bigger organizations like in um local government services have, have existed for supporting employees but local government again it, it's it's not got a huge amount of money to invest in it and i think they mm. still see it as a problem and they like to tick the boxes with their solutions and i i remember i'd um when my drinking got particularly bad uh, i'd attempted uh, to take my life and i when i went back um i was i was on the employee assistance program and yeah. it resulted in me being offered um a mindfulness session and access to an online portal where I was searching for quite a while for anything there that would actually that related to my circumstances. Because when I went on, all I could find was a blog by some Canadian guy about how he'd found it helpful keeping a dog and some tips <gasps> on dog ownership. Oh dear. How does this really result to my circumstances? I'm like feeling a bit down because, you know, tried to take my life i'm feeling i can't deal with my addiction issues um and here i am with a blog about a dog and i'm actually scared of dogs so that's not yeah. really going to help me much <laughs> <laughs> I think what yeah. they did do was I, I did manage to have a conversation with my manager at the time um and i was beginning to attend the local drug and alcohol service and yeah. if I was at like an agency or a smaller company, I wouldn't have been able to do that because their mm. meetings were during the week at a certain time. And I can't see yeah. um, small private employers allowing their employees time off to go and attend meetings at a local drug and alcohol service. I think their alarm bells would be ringing and they'd be thinking, oh, God, I've got a problem here. How can we get rid of it rather than, oh, let's support them through getting access to um, addiction services? They just want you gone interesting yeah that's an interesting perspective um and it is without a doubt it is a lot more difficult for smaller organizations to support any well-being because there just isn't the budget there for it and i think sometimes it's about collaborating across like a whole industry to tap into some of that support um and I, uh, that's yeah. something that um 
at Choose Sunrise, we offer, for example, we run something called the Sober Curious Society, which is a safe space. It is in working hours where people can come and explore their relationship with alcohol with no judgment. It's not a drug and alcohol service. It's more like a peer support group. Um, but actually, a lot of people do end up having long periods of sobriety after attending for a few months and thinking, do you know what? I'm just going to give it a go. Um, and it's more... It's not really an addiction recovery service because it's aimed at people who it's more a prevention service. So it's aimed at people who are nowhere near to their rock bottom, but they're in they're starting starting to worry about their drinking. And I almost think, you know, that 18 year old you who was rummaging around the sofa looking for coins. I just wonder if you'd had a sober curious society that you could go to. And you'd have gone along and found people who were saying it is actually okay to live without drinking. And I'm, I used to drink too much and I'm much happier now I don't drink. And this is how I did it. And these are some podcasts and some books and some resources. Would that have made a difference? When I was 18, um, I don't think so. Uh, maybe a bit further down the line, it might have done when I'd yeah. sort of realised actually this is, this is causing problems in my life because in eight, at 18, I was, it was new and it was exciting, um, yeah, yeah. and I I didn't I didn't really see any problems. I mean, I'd be yes. ill and I'd be sick and I'd feel rough the next morning, and then I'd bounce back, and yeah, it would have seemed yeah. worthwhile for the high that I got from it. As well. <laughs> oh yeah, um, but yeah. Further down the line, no, uh, um, I might have that might have been more effective. Yeah, I know it's my favourite um, part of. You know, it's the, my favorite favorite work that I do is running the Sober Curious Societies because um, it it's, you know, someone told me the other week that I'd saved their life. And it was like, I mean, I do think they were being a bit melodramatic, to be completely honest. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, all that it is is simple stuff where people share their stories with each other. Um, loads and loads of resources. We do things like sometimes we'll all read the same book and then talk about it. Sometimes someone from the group will come and share their personal story. Uh, sometimes it'll be a guest speaker talking about all the amazing alcohol-free options that there are. Um, there's all sorts of different things. We do alcohol-free tasting events. Um, but it's a safe space where people can just go, do you know what? Actually, I think I am a bit worried about my drinking and I've never, never dared say that out loud before. And for me that's quite life-changing actually for people and and that's the magic and it's being able to create that psychological safety in the workplace and actually that doesn't cost a lot of money it just takes a lot of compassion and thought and perhaps a bit of time investment it's not an expensive thing um so yeah i'd love to know what you what you think of that about that no i, I mean i i love the idea i mean this is this quite normal for um large organizations to have staff forums based around say um like race or sexuality yep. and i don't see why it shouldn't be you shouldn't have a safe space yeah. where people feel like they can speak to others who are going to be compassionate and understand and listen um around sobriety another another um part of the that post i shared on linkedin the other day um that i think is strongly relevant here is i I'd said that if we, um, sorry, I'll, I'll start that bit again. Um, <laughs> if we create an environment where it doesn't feel safe to talk about alcohol and addiction, then people aren't going to talk about it. 
And considering that there are 600,000 alcohol-dependent drinkers in the UK and many, many more grey area drinkers who are maybe at risk of dependence, not quite there yet, um, that means that some of those are going to be your colleagues. You work with some of them and you can't afford to be silent over it or just for it to be a taboo topic that can't be talked about because your colleagues are affected by it and that's going to affect your organisation. And so you've got to create a a place where they can speak about these things. I totally agree. I totally agree. And that's what, that's really the crux of what I'm doing in the workplace. And I'm absolutely loving it. Um, (laughs) I don't get, Um, I don't have enough clients at the moment to make it a full-time job, but I just think this is so important and I'm so passionate about doing it. I'm sure it's coming. Um, So what, if you are one of those people who thinks, do you know what, I have got a colleague who I'm a little bit worried about, what advice would you have for someone who, who you, you see in the workplace or you think, you know, they are always that most drunk person at the party Maybe they're even coming in smelling of alcohol. I don't know, but you, you're worried about them. Yeah, that would have been me. Um, and I've, I'm not sure because I've, I've never had to deal with concerns over a colleague because yeah. I was the one who was turning up smelling of alcohol or still being under the effects of it from the night before. Um, and did anyone ever say anything to I, you? Um, yeah, I was sort of discreetly ushered off and asked to go home and work from home for the morning and uh, or the whole day. I was taking yeah. time off of work. Like every now and then, my mental health would plummet to such a level that I was just unable to work. Um, yeah, for some periods. And but yeah, it was kept secret. Yes. People know that, that if you turn up and you're showing signs of suffering from addiction it's in the office, that's a really bad thing. It's much worse than if you turn up in the office showing signs of a bad cold or showing signs of depression. Yeah. And those things yeah. can be talked about. Turning up, looking rough and smelling a bit of vodka from yeah. the night before is considered much worse and that must be quickly swept under the carpet for your own safety as much as anyone else's. Um, I did find, when I was finally able to open up to my line manager about my problems with drinking, because I'd I'd signed on to the um, alcohol service um, provided by the local council, for a while, and I've been going to sort of meetings. They have one and eve one meeting per week that's outside of work hours, and I'd go to that one. But I felt like actually yeah. the ones that I needed to go to, which were sort of more structured in the program, were during the week. And I'd already started having problems with um, sort of disciplinary action and things because of my drinking, and that sort of forced me to yeah. talk about it. And Luckily, I had the sort of relationship with my line manager, and this is so critical, is the relationship between the employee and the line manager, where I was able to talk to him about it. And I knew that there would be a level of sympathy and understanding from him because um, one of his parents um, um, was also alcohol dependent. And I knew that. And 
he'd he'd dealt with that as a family member and he had some understanding of it um and he didn't really want me to get into trouble but also he had to do his duties as a line manager but i don't think those conversations would have um taken place if they hadn't been forced really and then i sort of, i and... lost my driving license right i see that yeah really yeah conversation and what difference did it make for you when you were able to talk to someone at work? Uh, it, I should have allowed it to make more difference than it did because I still carried on drinking. It, yeah. well, I think like a lot of people, I, I didn't yeah. get it right on my first attempt. And every now and then of I'd course. have yeah. an attempt. And if I've reached six months, I think that was as far as I which was a really good stretch. Yeah. And I felt so much better. And then I'd come back to my old ways again. But... Being able to talk, I, it was never comfortable. I never liked talking to my line manager about it. I would yeah. talk to him when I had to, but it felt like a, it still felt like it was the, it was the result of something punitive. Right. And yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. want to have that conversation because the whole time I was worried about repercussions. It's like, okay, well, I, I want to be honest with this person, but if I'm totally yeah. honest, will I still yeah. have a job? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it felt like a, a very difficult conversation that I had to be carefully negotiated. Mm, even so, yeah, that's interesting. And 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 in terms of the time off, just out of interest, did they give you some time off to go to those meetings? Yes, once a week for two yeah. hours. Yeah, and as well, long as I made up mm. the time elsewhere during the week. Because mm. would there have been an issue if you needed to go for physiotherapy? for uh, a knee injury no once a week yeah no if there's any physical condition or if mm. i had to go to counseling for something that probably wouldn't have been an issue but it took me a long while to see it like that myself to, so to even ask can i have this time off to attend this because i think it's important for my health yeah yeah that's interesting so and the stigma is so real that it's it's real in their eyes but also in your eyes yeah, in my eyes, because I mean, when I broken my leg and stuff from from drinking, yeah, I had no issues saying, "Look, this is when all my hospital appointments are." Um, I, I just asked for the support and help I need. I'm going to struggle to get into the office because I can't drive because yep. my legs and plaster. Yep. Um, <laughs> so yep. they helped arrange yep. for lifts, and I had to have regular checkups, and I had yep. no problem asking for any of those because the the issue is very obvious my, my leg is yeah. in plaster it's physical and there's not yeah. shame attached to it yes. i might have underplayed the effect that alcohol had 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 played um yeah, yeah. on me receiving that injury <laughs> yes of course um, yeah but i i didn't feel any sort of trepidation and asking yeah for the i mean they were they were offering time off they're saying oh look don't come in for about three weeks so there's not much you can yeah. do i mean um, yeah, just yeah. spend some time healing. Imagine if I'd said, "Look, oh, I think I've got a bit of a drink problem. I'll oh, take three weeks off, sort yourself out." Yeah, it just, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not yeah. suggesting you sort yourself out for three weeks, but no, not at all. The, the offers yeah. of support wouldn't be so forthcoming. Yeah, but I, do you know what though? I do have um, a, 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 an associate who is a, you know, has recovered from alcohol addiction many years ago, probably about 15 years ago now. And his employer actually, he had um, 
private medical insurance that covered rehabilitation and he was able to take six months off work go to rehab and go back to the same job and that's I mean I'm not I know that a small private company won't have the funds to do that necessarily but what an amazing experience for somebody um and and what a great message that also sends to the rest of the organization is to say you know we're going to treat it like any other health condition um it's 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 something that I'm quite passionate about changing with workplace um, sort of insurance and EAP cover um, because my personal experience of, of going to the EAP programme, the Employee Assistance Programme, is quite poor, similar to yours. Um, a few quizzes that you could fill in, um, loads of stuff about mental health and well-being, but search for, do a keyword search for the word alcohol and it just says try you know drink 14 units a week try and moderate yeah try and moderate and it's like well no shit sherlock if i could moderate i wouldn't be googling alcohol would i um <laughs> so yeah uh it's not like i've not thought of that <laughs> it's like, i'm not stupid i'm addicted it's not the same thing um and yeah, it's woefully inadequate. And also there was a huge exclusion clause for any funding for anything that was to do with um, any kind of rehabilitation. So that included alcohol and that meant that I couldn't see a specialist counsellor. So I got sent to like a general counsellor who um, told me how much she drank, which was actually considerably more than I drank and told me not to worry. So that kept me drinking for a good six months or so longer. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm fine. She's worse. Exactly. I skipped out of the meeting thinking, happy days, let's go down the pub. Um, Genuinely, that is what happened. And, you know, I I think that the people who put that EAP programme in place had the best of intentions. I think they really wanted colleagues to have a great experience. And when they needed help, they wanted it to be there. But it just, (laughs) when you kick the tyres on it, it really wasn't good enough. And I... I'm sure that's happening all over the place. It must be because like you say, there's a, it's such a taboo and there's so much stigma and the people putting together these programs are probably drinkers. Um, Statistically, they are likely to be drinkers. And so they've got a blind spot to it. Um, As a drinker, I had a blind spot to it. I would never ever in a million years have noticed how much the workplace culture was encouraging drinking because it just felt so normal. And as a drinker, you just think, well everyone drinks and you know workplaces will always be a reflection of the general culture of the nation but do you know what that is changing um look at the rise in alcohol free drinks look at the rise in people recovering out loud and saying you know i i'm going to talk openly about my addiction this is going to change and i think employers need to be on the front foot with this i think the really progressive employers who get the best talent of gen z and who have the best retention rates are going to have a much more sober and inclusive workplace culture. What's your thoughts on that, Michael? Well, I think if they're not doing it already, they have to, because, I mean, that's that's one in four, under 25 and under, them who don't drink. So, um, yeah. And one in five of the adult population generally now. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of effort, for example, if you're doing away days and things, a lot of uh, consideration is put into oh well, let's have we got anybody um, who's vegan or gluten intolerant and they'll consider <laughs> yeah. these and like, that's that's three percent of the population 
they, they don't think, oh, what about people who don't drink? 20% to 25 depending on your age group of the population. That, it's just not given the consideration, even though it's no. a much bigger segment of the workforce. Um, yeah. And so I think things need to change. And I can see alcohol going the same way as um, cigarettes. Um, uh, I, I do. I can see, and I hope so. It just seems like there is such an anomaly between the way the two are treated. It's like, well, why are cigarettes hidden behind a screen and they have um, very generic branding with pictures of um, sort of nasty-looking lungs, etc., on them, whereas alcohol is in very attractively branded um, bottles which are openly on display, um, no visible health. I mean, you don't get a bottle of alcohol with a a shriveled liver on it. No, uh, but uh, you really should. I, mean, I think you should. Or, or yeah. a picture of a mum crying in the corner as a yeah. sort of baby yeah. picks up a knife or crawls into the road. I mean, that's the reality of alcoholism. The, mm-hmm. the, the types yeah. of harm between alcohol and cigarettes are very different. Um, I think there's everybody knows about the risk of, sort of um, cancers from smoking. And they're probably greater than the risk of cancer from alcohol for the individual taking it. But alcohol, I mean, we're only beginning to learn about the the risks between alcohol and cancer. But the harms permeate so much further than the individual who's drinking. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So you don't tend to find someone smokes smokes too many cigarettes more than they intended, then goes home and beats up their wife. No, absolutely um, not. They don't smoke too many cigarettes and then reach a crashing low and try to kill themselves. Um, no, don't they don't reach, find people don't... smoking too much and then committing crimes that would be utterly unthinkable to them if they hadn't smoked cigarettes. And, but these are the repercussions of alcohol. The, the harm yeah. is so much wider because of the way it alters the brain. And yes, there yeah. is the physical risk, but it's, there's a whole societal risk. From alcohol, yeah. it doesn't exist with smoking. Yeah, yeah. There's a you lot don't drink too much. Uh, yeah, you don't drink. smoke too many cigarettes and then get in the car and crash into someone and kill someone. No. Yeah, or yeah. even the next morning, you know, smoke too many cigarettes the night before and wake up thinking you're fine and then have an accident. You know, this. I mean, the alcohol harms. We could talk about all day, couldn't we? We really could. So I mean, far-reaching. Into the cost case the other day. I was doing a bit of research because this is what I do with my spare time these days. And <laughs> I, was hearing, I, was, I was hearing a friend talk about like the, the tax revenue from alcohol. And that's why nothing will change because the government makes yeah. so much money from alcohol. And I was thinking, well, how about alcohol harm, though? That's got to cost money. Mm-hmm. And there are it's very difficult to quantify. But the, the sort of the headline, I suppose, from what I was looking into was that the, the government makes about twelve and a half billion pounds in the UK from tax revenue on alcohol per year. But yeah. um, the 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 study I looked at, and I'll give you the reference details soon, but uh, it, it it costed up all sorts of problems that alcohol causes. Yeah. And not often people just think about the NHS, but mm, there's also yeah. there's the crime, there's the loss of employment. There's so many other aspects that alcohol... And the, the cost that this study had put on it per year was over 50 billion. So... Wow. 
that's not yeah. a very that's not a very good investment, is it? If you're trying, if you're no. wanting people <laughs> to drink for the the tap you, and it's costing nearly five times as much in problems as you're getting in income from tax, then that doesn't sound like yeah. a very good investment for a government. I know it's um very <laughs> it's, yeah it. It, it does depend. It's it's like trying to knit fog, isn't it? Trying to put numbers against some of these things because there's multiple yeah. factors, and there'll always be people who argue with the statistics. But that you, I mean, I know you said people only think of NHS, but you only have to go into A and E on a Friday night and just have a look around to just see the absolute devastating effects that alcohol has every, day in, day out, every week, it all up and down the country, and we just accept it. We just accept it as normal. Oh, it's just you know, it's a bit yeah, of a laugh, well, isn't it? Being... The, the brawls at the weekend i mean yeah that's that's crime and I mean, crime is one of the huge costs as a result of alcohol and again that's not something yeah. you really get with cigarettes either. well where the focus has been on crime and alcohol and cigarettes the the focus is on people smuggling it that's that's really yeah. what the um yeah, the, yeah that's <laughs> the only to, bit that's funded isn't it yeah crime and alcohol is like on sort of like the gov website but really it's they're, they're just wanting to make sure they get the tax that's their main priority yeah. it's, it's about all oh, yeah. these people have brought it in and the uk isn't getting yeah. the tax from it rather than yeah the the associated problems of it yeah, but something I think it's something like a third of all violent incidents involve alcohol and half of all sexual harassment claims involve alcohol. Um so yeah. It's because and you'll know this um Michael from your research but alcohol switches off your ability to make rational decisions. It literally switches it off. And yeah. So no one you know you've just got people with the chimp brain mixing with each other and getting annoyed with each other, fighting with each other, wanting to shag each other, like <laughs> wanting to eat kebabs. Um, and it's just carnage. It's just absolute carnage. And sometimes it's not just chimp brain, is it? Because to a certain point, you can you can drink yourself down to the level of lizard brain, I think, even. You can. So, Correct, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, so we expect people legally, and it's right, to um, continue to operate out of um, sort of good moral choices whilst mm. they're drinking, but that side yeah. of the brain just isn't engaged. You're not going to. You're yeah. going to be in survival mode, fight or flight. You're going to want food. You're going to want water. You're going to want to see off any threats, run away, and you're going to want to reproduce. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I think everybody should be, it should be made very aware to people that when they have a drink they are still going to be responsible for all their behavior whilst their um brain um is is shut off by alcohol whilst the rational and um moral decision making part of their brain is shut off anything could happen yeah. but they're going to be still responsible for it mm. and i don't think I people realize this no, I don't think they do. And I think there's, you know, there's a real issue here with this kind of narrative of drink responsibly. Um, I have a real issue with those words because once you've had one drink, how can you be held responsible, you know, when that's what the effect of the drug is? It doesn't make sense to me. And I think there's a real societal kind of belief that you should be able to control this addictive substance. So it's not 
very socially acceptable to say I'm not drinking and it's definitely not socially acceptable to say I'm an alcoholic everyone is expected to be in this kind of very narrow tier of being able to drink just the right amount to fit in not too much so you make a fool of yourself but you know not nothing at all because that's just sad and boring that that for me is what needs to change and that's the thinking that we need to challenge because when you break it down rationally that does not make sense to expect people to do that it doesn't make sense at all you wouldn't expect people to be able to do that with heroin or cocaine why do you expect them to do it with alcohol and I think the other sad thing, which I was a belief that I subscribed to, definitely was I used to um, think that people were them re- that were their real selves when they'd had a drink. Oh yeah, it's like the so true version yeah. of themselves came up, and I couldn't bond yeah. with someone unless I drunk with them because uh, when you drink, you let someone into your true self. But it's not. When I was drinking, no. I used to come up with all sorts of rubbish. I yeah. Why I, I don't know why I thought somebody was their true selves when the rational thinking part of their brain was shut off. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And, and working with people who are ditching the booze through my, you know, 101 Days to Sober program, every single person who comes out at the other end of that feels like they are more their authentic self than they've ever been since before they started drinking. Like, that, they find out who they actually are when they stop drinking. I mean, it might take a little while, but they really do start to reconnect with their true selves. There is, it yeah. is utter nonsense that you're your true self when you're drinking. Utter, utter nonsense. <laughs> alcohol, alcohol is not a truth serum. I don't know why I used no. to think of it. Some sort. Of I know people, it's funny, isn't might, it? Yeah. Might let secrets out, but they're they're also telling a load of speaking a load of rubbish. Yes, they really and, are and telling blatant lies. I mean. I was yeah. talking the other day to somebody about a time I was in I was in Prague. Oh God, I I'd been speaking to Janie Lee Grace. I've gone and met her, and she let me try this martini, alcohol-free martini, and I haven't had it for years. And I tasted it; it just took me back to this long weekend. I went to Prague, and I had too much of um, martini. It was absolutely ratted, and I'd gone to this. Um, it was like this show bar. Where they had um, they had uh, dancing drag queens on the stage, and yeah. I was so drunk that I thought it would be a good idea to go up oh. on the stage, and oh. I introduced myself as a famous British actor, and then I started. <laughs> I asked, I asked for them to play some music so I could sing along, and then I and they were expecting me to be really good because I was a famous British actor. I was not a famous British. Actor. I can't see sober, let alone drunk. And then there's oh, just the reaction of these poor people like, thinking, what the hell is happening here? Oh my <laughs> goodness. Really oh my god. Yeah. Sat- that is not yeah, it's not the truth serum. I don't know why I thought No, it's not. Was that my authentic self? No, God no. no. I would definitely never do not. that in a million years if I wasn't drinking. I- it's absolutely crazy, isn't it, what we end up doing? Um, I could tell you some stories. I'll probably yes. tell you offline. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like you're a similar drunk to me, actually. Um, it <laughs> becomes suddenly extroverted. And, yeah, in a way that wow. I'm really not. I'm an introvert. <laughs> Why did I think I was an extrovert? Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm so, quite extroverted anyway, but 
I think mm. also the other thing I'm that not. played into this was it was only when I got so <laughs> it was only when I sobered up that I was able to have a proper assessment of my mental health for the first time yeah. in my life. And then yeah. at the age yeah. of forty, diagnosed with ADHD, which is Oh wow. Yeah. Well known connections. So yeah, I was diagnosed are. last September at the age of so I'd been, you know, it helps explain part of the depression, which is all um, yeah. which is often like a um, associated with like the shame you and guilt you often feel from not being able to fit in and from not being able to achieve simple things that others find difficult. It, it plays into why I was having to make my brain quiet so that I could sleep, yes. and it explains yeah. a lot. And if I hadn't had that yeah. time without alcohol, I'd have never. Yeah, do you know that explains the rooting around the sofa for the money, doesn't it? Perhaps, you know, at 18, like feeling that compulsion to go again with the drinking, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Don't know. Like, I'm not going to get into I, medical just, diagnoses. You know, I, I, <laughs> no, the, the, only, the thing I think we also need to realise as well is that I think the biggest mistake I've ever made and a lot of people make is they assume that everyone experiences the world in the same way that they do. Yes. Um, yeah. And and it's the same with alcohol. Just because you experience alcohol in one way, what you feel as a result of it isn't what mm. everybody feels. But like it can affect us yeah. all differently. And you're never going to know yeah. how it affects someone else. You're not going to know what that feels like. Um, yeah. For example, yeah. again, relating it back to the ADHD, um, stimulant drugs such as cocaine and speed i had dabbled in those when i was drunk before i never d chosen to do them but i always thought well this is i don't know why people are so excited about this it's absolutely rubbish it's just it's made me calm down and that's because if you could have adhd and you have that um deficiency of dopamine well yeah that is leveled out so for, wow. i never okay. got a rush yeah. from doing it and yeah. i used to think why why do people think this is like a really good party drug? Because all it's done for me is I, I've spent a lot of money trying to get drunk. Now I feel sober and like I could sit down and read a book somewhere. And there's, I mean, the, wow. the drugs are used to, mm. to treat ADHD are, ascent, are very similar to speed. I mean, that's, wow. and mm. for example, like, you treat it with stimulants and the stimulants actually bring you to a more, normal i hate that word to a more normal level mm. also explains why for the last um, at least 10 years i've been drinking two liters of strong coffee every morning and then have a nap yeah. at lunchtime because I need, the coffee i sort of kind of need it to wake up but it also gets me into a state where my brain isn't darting about so much but it doesn't necessarily and then and then i get a little bit tired <laughs> i can drink yeah. two liters of coffee and then have a nice sleep <laughs> Do you know, that sounds like me. Though, I'm wondering so... if I need an ADHD diagnosis. <laughs> I could sleep on a washing line, to be fair. I really could. Um... <laughs> that is fascinating. So... Absolutely fascinating. We could probably do a whole so, other podcast about alcohol same... and ADHD, you know. Well, it must be the same with alcohol, that we don't all experience it in the same way. No, That's about why, like, with prescribed medications, for some people, some medications are excellent and you know they work really yeah. well whereas for other people that one doesn't really work so well for me but this one does but yes, i don't know why yeah, we can be so yeah. prepared to just to accept that with prescribed yeah. medications but then assume that alcohol affects everybody in the same way but i think we all yeah you're right yeah 
Yeah, you're right. And perhaps the people who push the drink responsibly message, I mean, obviously that is funded by the drinks industry, so they do have an agenda. But perhaps there are more well-meaning people who think, well, you should be able to drink responsibly because I can. And perhaps they can't understand what it's like for people like me and you who have a drink and then go, I need another one straight away. You know, it's not... it's like for people like my dad... Yeah. Example. I mean, I don't think he gets a huge amount of pleasure from drinking. I think he has yeah, a drink, yeah. and it makes him feel a bit sort of tipping, and it sort of scares him a little bit. He thinks, "Oh, I don't like this. I feel a little bit ill." And uh, whereas I have one uh, a drink, and then it's just like within a matter of minutes, I've got this absolute rush of euphoria, and there's no way I want yeah. that to end. I don't yeah, think my dad yeah. gets that. A bit like yeah, the way I didn't yeah. get that rush of euphoria if yeah. an illegal drug was put up my nose. I just yeah. thought. Let's read a book. Yeah, and I, I did start reading some research, and I've been trying. I I can't find anything else about it. I have only ever read this mentioned in one article, and again, I'll dig this this out for you for some references. Um, and the article was about why some people might enjoy alcohol more than others, and I'm really interested in this because I do think this definitely is something in this. And it was about how the alcohol has like um, a, uh, alcohol. Re- has a depressant effect and then in response to that your body releases stimulants as i'm sure you know and it's about how some people that stimulant response is a more pleasurable experience for them for some reason and that's the bit that they were trying to get to in the research was what is that reason why is it or is it a stronger stimulant response um but basically some people just love alcohol and i was like that and everyone i speak to in recovery is the same they they loved alcohol from the first time they tried it um they wanted more they really enjoyed it they wanted to go back to it and it's it's i wonder if there is actually some identifying gene or some identifying factors physiologically that mean that some people are more at risk of alcohol dependency because of that don't know yeah and i I don't think anybody develops an alcohol problem from uh, coming from a place of being indifferent about drink i don't think somebody thinks oh this is right take it or leave it and then go on to develop a problem Mm, i think yeah for a lot of people there's a genuine love for it and then i think we change the way we use it so for in in my case i was using it to enhance social sort of activity when i first started and it was great fun and it was at the weekends but and then when i suffered bereavements i was then using alcohol in a very different way i was using it to shut off my brain because i found it was good at that as well yeah Um, exactly that's my that's exactly my experience yeah there's got to be predispositions, mm. but then there's mm. also got to be learned behaviour. Yeah, I, and environmental factors. Alcohol could be used in different ways. Yeah, it's, it's not, yeah. we'll probably never get to the bottom of it, but no. I think we can all safely understand that we all have different brains. Um, yes, no and brains we have different experiences. Yeah. The same to, yeah. To, um, yeah. The same chemicals. So. Listen, thank you, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today. Um, I always finish um, every interview with the same question, you may have noticed. So I'm going to have to ask you, what is your favourite book and why? What is my favourite book and why? I'm going to get the title wrong now. Um, But when I first gave up the booze, um, I... Don't say giving up, it's stopping. I know. 
or, or ditching. <laughs> when I ditched the booze. Ditching, yes. <laughs> it wasn't so. Um, I, I became interested in philosophy for some reason. I decided I just, I yeah. wanted to change the way I viewed the world and get some different perspectives. Um, and I bought a book called A Little History of Philosophy. Ah, um, fab. And I didn't really know anything about philosophy until then, but it was like a, it was a very user-friendly um, guide for the uninitiated, such as myself. Yeah. I, I just thought, why well, didn't I know anything about Socrates and Plato and any of these mm. thinkers? I've got all these questions, which I'm sure people have asked before. And I just loved the read, and that led me on to reading different areas of philosophy as well. Um, I think I should warn you that when you start reading about philosophy, if you're doing it to try and find answers to your questions, you're very unlikely to find any, because all it does really <laughs> is it raises more and more questions. Yes, but it really for me, does. That, yeah. For me, that was my... I mean, Socrates, one of the greatest thinkers in the world, sorry, in history, and he always insisted that he knew nothing and he only had questions. Well, I, I think that helped me to accept that I don't actually have to know everything and I don't have to be right yeah. about everything. And you can have questions and you don't... I've, I've spent a lot of my time trying to prove myself right about things. And these days I'm very happy to accept when I don't know. And I also like being proven wrong about so many things. I used to hate the idea of being wrong. But I used to believe that it was it wasn't possible for me to stop drinking. That I'd got alcoholics yeah. in the family, um, yeah. who were who were Scottish, and for me, like that meant if you cut my veins open, whiskey would come out. And I had all these stupid beliefs, and I thought that it wasn't possible for me to stop drinking. And then I proved myself wrong. And so to this day, I just like suspending my beliefs or or proving myself yeah. wrong. There's nothing. There's yeah, no harm in being wrong because we're human. Absolutely. And so, yeah, if I, I didn't really do it yet until I was already sober for quite a while. Um, but it was um, reading about philosophy that helped me change the way I thought about the world, about myself, about the the point of living, what constitutes sort of your, your morals and um, how society functions. It just it asked so many questions mm. um, and it just enabled me to let go of this need to be right. Yeah. Brilliant. I love that. And, and 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 I love the idea of just awakening that curiosity, um, which is something that happens, I think, to a lot of people when they put down the drink and start to feel more curious about the world around them, which is fantastic. So, yeah. Michael, just tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your, if you've got websites, I'm sure you do, um, where they can get in touch with you, what your PR work is. Okay, so um, my website is sobersocials.co.uk and there you'll find um, local events, news about the sort of the sober scene, the sober sphere. Um, and my social media, I'm on um, Instagram and Facebook as um, at happy without the hooch. I tried to do the same on Twitter, but that's too many characters. So I ended up having to be happy hoochie there. So it does. I mean, that was the last sort of platform um, I I adopted. Um, and I'm, if you're interested in finding about my sort of professional background, then I'm on LinkedIn as Michael Sargood. Um, yeah, which is so, how we found each other actually. Although I have heard you on Janie's podcast many times, so yeah, I feel like I know you from that. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, think, uh, I don't know how that happened, really. Yeah, I just ended up being her most frequent guest. Oh, but she's fabulous, isn't she? I love Jane. I absolutely love Jane. She's my sober coach. So, yeah. And she's always um, over in South End. Exactly. Down your way, isn't she? Right. So, yeah. Happy day. So yeah. if you are in South End, you definitely need to look up Michael and find out whether he's got a sober social happening in the area. Um, but more generally, my, my website's for events across the UK. I only really do the odd occasional yeah. local meetup. But I, and I you hope, do a, and if you've got a any quiz, event, don't you? Mm. I do. I've got my quiz tonight, actually. I do a monthly online Ooh. quiz. Um, I'm, I'm doing some work, some more creative workshops as well. I've got a, this is something ridiculous. I was, I've got a sober sonnet writing workshop. It started Ooh, off like with that. me and a couple of friends who are sober on Instagram. We like to interact. One of them wrote a, a Valentine's poem. And then, then people kept on submitting poems. And actually, I've, I've been really interested in poetry. And I've got a massive poetry yeah. selection on my shelf. And I know a bit about poetic form and things. So I said, well, nice. as everybody's in a poetic mood, who would like to do a workshop where we can write a sonnet? I said, oh, sonnets yeah. of excellent form. Yeah. All about the form and the rhyming pattern and stuff. But then in a sonnet, there's always a what's called a volta, a turning point. So we're going to use it to talk about a change we want to make in our life or have made, and that could be to do with alcohol or it could be to do with some other sort of change you want to make in your life. And it's going to be very lighthearted. I expect some of them to be quite silly, but it's, it's, more, it's more about building community, having fun, and then facing the fear of looking silly, which is Ooh, something I always yeah. struggled with. It's like yeah, facing the fear of people thinking... Like failing publicly, which is exactly. I mean, I did a uh, an improvised comedy course when I stopped drinking, and that was because I suffered terribly from nerves. And I thought, oh, now that I'm not drinking, yeah, I've got to deal with my anxiety. And I yeah. thought, well, the idea of going up on stage absolutely terrifies me. And if I can go up on stage and fail and survive it, well, that won't be as scary next time. I don't have to be funny. I just have to go on stage. <laughs> no, you just have to survive. Yeah. I was thinking, I used to go out every weekend, make an utter, utter idiot of myself, <laughs> like in the yeah. most shameful way possible. And I didn't beat myself up about it for too long. So why am I scared to not be funny on a stage? Yeah. Isn't it? That is a lot less strange? embarrassing. But... Yeah. Yeah. So I've got to get a grip of this, so I threw myself in the deep end and started doing um, stand-up and improvised comedy. And I wasn't always oh, funny, but I you. survived. And I'm okay. I'm okay with not being yeah. good at things now, because you're allowed Fantastic. to not be good at your hobbies. The hobbies. Yes, of course you are. Goals. Exactly. Oh, well done you. It's, you are fascinating, and I think you probably were quite funny, to be honest, Michael. But we'll uh, <laughs> we'll have to disagree well, on that one. But listen, thank you. It went better. <laughs> thank you so much for your honesty and for sharing with us today. Um, thank you, Michael. And I will make sure that all your details and contacts are in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Michael, for being such a fantastic guest. It really is an absolute pleasure to be in your circle of um, acquaintances. And perhaps we could even describe ourselves as friends. I'd like to think so. Um, I'm a huge fan of the work that Michael does. And you can find out more about that if you could head over to LinkedIn and look for Michael Sargood. 
Um, and if, if you want a little bit of insight uh, into Michael and his um, quirky personality, you need to head over to SoberSocials.co.uk where you can see where it all began for Michael. Um, he has a fantastic community. Um, it's super cheap. It's like three pounds a month, um, cheaper than a coffee, you know, one coffee a month to connect with sober people from all all over the world, actually. Um, and he also hosts the Big Sober Quiz, um, which is a really fun <laughs> way to connect with other sober people. Um, he really is doing fantastic work in this space. Um, and I'm certainly going to be working um, with Michael going forwards on his new venture, which is, um, as he said, he's setting up um, as an independent uh, PR professional, um, supporting alcohol-free um, people like myself who are run, running business in the businesses in the alcohol-free space to reach or new audiences. So uh, perhaps you're hearing me now as a result of some work that Michael's done for me. Who knows? <laughs> so listen, thank you so much. Um, and remember that uh, very special launch event for the new collaboration between Choose Sunrise and the Alcohol Free Events Company and, of course, the Sober Butterflies. So if you're in Leeds or West Yorkshire, come and meet us at Leeds City Centre, the 3rd of May, arrive between five and half five. Um, it's only five minutes from the train station um, and we would absolutely love to welcome you there. Um, so if you want to know more about that, drop me a note at hello at choosesunrise.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. If you'd like to learn more about creating a drink-safe workspace without killing the buzz, visit choosesunrise.co.uk and head to the HR Services page. Let's end the stigma because nobody should feel afraid to ask for help with alcohol use.